Hi there, I'm Phoebe Wells, and this is Not Fake News. It's the podcast that aims to open your mind to the things you should know, need to know, or didn't know you wanted to know. I am so excited to be bringing these words to your ears at this current moment that you are listening to them. This podcast has been in the works for a while now. I got my start in the podcasting world about two years ago when I created, hosted, and produced iHeartRadio and 810 and 1031 WGY's podcast, Upstate Unsolved, which is a true crime podcast that focuses on unsolved crimes in upstate New York. The two seasons I spent doing that work was invaluable, and I truly believe that in sharing the stories of the three women that we covered will absolutely lead to answers in their cases. That podcast was in partnership with the Cold Case Analysis Center at the College of St. Rose, which happened to be my alma mater. I had the honor of collaborating with them and had the amazing support from the people of iHeart and WGY. Oh, to be clear, this podcast is separate from iHeartRadio. This is my side project that I just felt compelled to do, and I'm not doing it with anyone else. It's just me, which is a terrifying thing if you've never done anything like that before. While yes, the bulk of the technical work of Upstate Unsolved I did on my own, I wrote each episode, I narrated each episode, edited the series, but the work that went into it was not just me. That saying, it takes a village, definitely applied to that endeavor. Especially on the research end, the interns at the Cold Case Analysis Center are seriously some of the most amazing humans I've ever met, and my hope for the future criminal justice system is very high after working with them. But for not fake news, it's just me, which is also why this podcast has probably taken as long as it has to get started. So, why should you listen to not fake news? Well, planet Earth is home to a lot of amazing people. It's also filled with really cool ideas that may be different than anything we've experienced before. So I'll be bringing conversations with people who have expertise in things like psychology, law enforcement, advocacy, mindfulness, technology, teaching, traveling. The conversations are truly infinite. I'll find really interesting people who will share some nugget of information with us that hopefully sticks inside our brains. It's also my way of trying to bring this world together. I realize that sounds super ambitious and maybe a little egotistical, but I want people to realize that the struggles they may be facing are not unique to them. And I don't mean that in a, in a way that diminishes pain or trauma or strife in someone's life. What I mean by it is there are people out there that have gone through what you are going through, but more specifically, there are people out there that have survived, that have gotten through what you're going through right now. So my intention for Not Fake News is to have those conversations with people, creating a space of mutual vulnerability that will be that spark of joy or that spark of inspiration for someone listening to it that will improve their life so that they can then go and improve someone else's life. Again, I recognize a very ambitious goal, but hey, why dream small? So that's the main crux of Not Fake News. And I chose that name because I love puns. And since I'm a reporter who's trying to be vulnerable and real and talk about important topics, I figured I'm all about not being fake and I'm here to share news that helps humanity. So it's not fake news. I also think it's important to stay informed with current events, which is why in between this introduction portion of the episode and the main crux of the episode, I'll include a recap of the weekly headlines. I'll focus on national stories and global stories, but I'll also include some local to upstate New York headlines in there because local news is extremely important. Now, I'm aware that not everyone listening to this resides here, but realistically, I'm sure what's going on here is not so different than what's going on in your hometown. And hey, you'll get to learn about Glens Falls, Saratoga, Lake George, all great places. (laughs) And then after the main event of the episode, I'll close out with an intention setting segment. I'll be the first to admit my practice of setting intentions is a little shaky, which is something I'm desperately trying to work on because I know the difference it makes when you set an intention and stick to it. It just sets you on a path of good momentum. All right, so I think I've come to the conclusion of my first opening segment of the first episode of Not Fake News. Woo! So without further ado, here are your Not Fake News weekly headlines. 
Congressional leaders have agreed on a $900 billion COVID-19 stimulus package. On Sunday, December 20th, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced the deal, saying that the four leaders of the Senate and the House have reached a consensus. The package includes $600 stimulus checks for qualifying Americans, and unemployment benefits of up to $300 per week have been extended. Additionally, the moratorium on evictions has been extended until January 31st, providing $25 billion in emergency assistance to renters and covers $13 billion in increased food stamps and nutrition benefits. The scope of a massive cyber attack on U.S. government agencies and private organizations is currently under investigation. In what is being described as the worst-ever cyber attack on federal agencies, at least six government agencies, including the State Department, Treasury, Homeland Security, and the Pentagon, have been affected. Microsoft was also targeted in the breach. According to reports, the hack started in March when malicious code was embedded into updates to a software made by the company SolarWinds, which services most of the Fortune 500 companies and government agencies in North America, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. The malware allowed hackers to remotely access an organization's networks in order to steal information. Government officials indicate that the hack was perpetrated by Russia. In coronavirus news, a second coronavirus vaccine made by biotech company Moderna was approved on Friday, December 18th, and the first doses were shipped on Sunday. The Federal Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has recommended that after healthcare workers and nursing home residents receive the vaccine, people over 75 and essential workers like teachers, grocery store workers, and firefighters be next in line to receive their shot. 556,000 Americans received their initial doses of the the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine. And President-elect Joe Biden was inoculated on live TV this evening in what Biden says is a way to demonstrate to the American people that the vaccine is safe. A nor'easter pummeled the East Coast on Wednesday into Thursday, with areas in the capital region of New York receiving over three feet of snow. Officials from Virginia to Maine reported hundreds of weather-related car crashes and at least six deaths. And you're going to want to be sure to look up tonight as Jupiter and Saturn will align in what astronomers are calling the Great Conjunction. A conjunction happens when planets appear incredibly close to one another in the sky due to their alignment with Earth in their respective orbits. The Christmas star marks the closest apparent encounter of the two planets in nearly 400 years and takes place on the winter solstice of 2020. Through an astrological scope, the event has significance as it marks the official shift of a 200 year period, during which Jupiter and Saturn made conjunctions mainly in Earth signs and into a 200-year period of conjunctions in air signs, beginning a new 800-year macro cycle. I'm Phoebe Wells, and those are your NFN Weekly Headlines. I started conducting interviews for Not Fake News a couple of months ago. As I mentioned, it's taken a few months to get this podcast off the ground, okay? (laughs) All of the conversations I had, I believe that you'll very much enjoy. And while the conversations I've had are relatable, thought-provoking, interesting, everything I want to bring to this podcast, they just didn't feel right for the first episode. I knew that I had a duty to set the tone for what I'm trying to do. And then it hit me. Oh, I should interview my therapist. I've been seeing Dr. Deborah Pietrangelo for over a decade. She has quite literally watched my development as a human. She's helped me through the lowest of lows and celebrated with me at my highest of highs. The following conversation was humbling, to say the least. We delved into some aspects of my life that I used to let control me, things that I still am in the process of working through. We also discuss her impressive career, the beautiful sanctuary she's created, and of course, how to cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. As I said before, my intention for Not Fake News is vulnerability and showing people that they are not alone in their struggles. I'm sharing these pieces of myself with you in the hopes that something Deborah or I say helps you on your journey. I cannot wait to get into this conversation. Deborah has been my therapist for, is it 14 years? You don't mind me giving away your age, Phoebe. You were 13. Oh my God. Okay. So 13, technically then. (laughs) Not 27 yet. So my big thing for doing this podcast is vulnerability. 
And really just being real, being raw with people, because I think having open and honest conversations is how real change can come about in this world. So I thought for the first episode, what better way to be vulnerable than to interview my therapist? So (laughs) here we are. (laughs) So Deborah, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. First of all, Phoebe, I think you're incredibly courageous. It is about being vulnerable and vulnerability takes courage. Well, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah, I am a psychologist without belaboring this too much. I was a psychology major in college. I didn't start out that way. I started out as a pre-med major, but then took a psychology course and loved it and thought, well, I'll just take another one and loved it. Took another one and loved it. You know, it became pretty clear pretty fast that psychology was my thing and, and to be a psychology major made a lot of sense. And I remember as an undergraduate thinking the coolest thing would be to have my own practice and to be able to sit in a nice office with my clients and really work on their personal growth. That seemed really attractive to me, but it also seemed out of reach Mm -hmm. because at the time there were not some of the specialties in counseling that there are now. And to become a psychologist meant I had to get a doctorate, which meant I had to write a dissertation which was daunting to me. I didn't think I could do that. So I ended up going on, got a master's in counseling and then worked for a while in an agency and then had a family. And then when my children were, were small, I had a friend call me. She had been a previous boss of mine and she called me up and told me she had just gotten her PhD in school psychology and it was a program I should look into. Even though I hadn't spoken to her in like a couple of years, she called me at that exact serendipitous moment of when I was, you know, ready to do something with my, my life yep. um, and my career. So I checked it out and ended up going to SUNY Albany and got my doctorate in school psychology. The nice thing about getting a doctorate and then getting your license to practice is that you're not bound to that one area. So I did work in a school for a while using my skills as a school psychologist and then went into private practice to do clinical work. Did that for a number of years in my own private practice. And then about 11 years ago, the building I was working in uh, was owned by someone who was selling the building. So I started looking for another building to practice in, to purchase and practice in. I was going to get something small. (laughs) Ended up up purchasing the building that we, we have now and that Uh, is known as True North at 499 Glen, where I have lots of space for other practitioners. So I was able to create this community of practitioners and other, in the past, we've had other healthcare workers here. Right now, we're just psychologists and social workers and mental health therapists and marriage and family therapists. But it's evolved in those 11 years, and it's been great. I'm really, really fortunate. You know, it's been really cool. Obviously, you've watched me grow because you've known me since I was 13, but watching your practice grow has been so amazing. And especially going on social media and I'll see posts because mental health is being talked about so much more now, which is so important. But I'll have friends that'll be like, you know, I'm looking for a good a good therapist or I'm looking for a good therapist for my children. And I'll see those like True North at 499 Glen. It brings me joy because I remember the old building that you were in. It was like next to a dentist's office, right? Was that what it was? Yeah. And like just to see the transformation of you and there's a waiting room and there's toys in the waiting room. And then I remember you buying the building and telling me about it and showing me. And you're like, this is what, this is going to be a whole community. And, you know, my little kid brain was just like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And then, you know, flash forward 11 years. And I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of that community because, I've heard it's hard to get in because you are just so popular. So I feel good <laughs> that I have, I've been able to watch this whole transformation and people should really check it out because it's quite extraordinary. Well, thanks for that, Phoebe. It's my baby. You know, I, I love it. And um, I have great people here and that's mm. what makes it what it is. Grateful for that. And you can tell when you walk in, the energy is just so comforting and calming and healing. And we really need that 
And I know at my lowest points, walking in, opening that front door and breathing in just all the goodness that is there, it, it helps. It's instantly uplifting. It's not a, oh, I have to go to therapy. No, it's, oh, I'm going to therapy. I'm going to feel so much better afterwards. And I'm so thankful for that. And you've created that. And that's so cool. Oh, thanks for that feedback. Yeah, absolutely. That's the truth. (laughs) So basically, from what you said about your career, you really have always envisioned where you are right now. No, not really. No, okay. No, I mean, I I think, no, I really haven't come to, you know, when I think about it. I've been really fortunate in my life that the universe has just placed people in my path, you know, at the right time, Mm -hmm. and things have unfolded sort of as they have. The biggest surprise for me was True North. When I was in my old office that you talked about um, next to the dentist's office, the oral surgeon's office, (laughs) I thought I'd be there for the rest of my career and that would have been fine. Well, there was one other psychologist in the building, but you know, I was alone in my office with my little waiting room with the toys. (laughs) That would have been okay, you know, but the owner of the building needed to sell the building. I had to look for something else because we had no idea we could stay there. So I started looking at buildings. I really like to be in community with people. So I had three other colleagues that I was talking to and I said, you know, if I can find a building for the four of us, can we all go in together? And they, they were on board. So I started looking and there was another large building in town that was a very reasonable price. So I looked at it and it was lovely, but it had some concerns as far as things that needed to be done, renovation and things that needed to be done with it. And while I was looking at it for about the fourth or fifth time, the real estate agent said to me, there's a building coming up for sale tomorrow and we need to see it immediately. And so he brought me to this building at 499 Glen. And as soon as I walked in, it needed a lot of work, needed a lot of cosmetic work, but I can envision what it could be. And it was really exciting to me. And I just knew, I just had a profound knowing in myself that it was the thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And I just, I never questioned it. And the history behind the building is interesting as well, right? Was it related to the Charles R. Wood Foundation? Yes, it was. It was the Charles R. Wood Foundation building. Okay, yeah. um, It was where Charles Wood and Paul Newman had their offices for Double H Hole in the Woods. When I bought it, Charles Wood had died and his foundation still owned it and it had been sitting empty for a while. And so they had finally decided to sell it and that's when, you know, that's when I found it. And just never look back. Oh, it's a gorgeous building. And again, I know I said it before, but I'm just so thankful to be a part of it because it's, it's really special. <laughs> so I did want to ask what it's like to be someone's therapist for as long as you have been mine. And I'm sure you have many clients that are in the same position that you saw as kids and now are adults. What is that like to be there for truly the development of a person. I mean, you saw me when my brain was, you know, just starting to get developed and it just finished. (laughs) So, (laughs) so what is that like? It's awesome. Quite literally. I know that word gets overused, but it's really been awesome to watch you grow up from an an early adolescent into a full-fledged adult. Mm -hmm. And I was reading through our notes for the past 13 and a half years. Oh. (laughs) Yesterday and today, I was reading through all those notes. There's a lot of them, believe me. (laughs) And it was really quite something to, part of me wanted you to be there to like read them to you and share it with you. And it was amazing to, just to witness that journey again in the written word. Mm. Remember what we experienced together, you know, one-on-one in my office. When you started with me, you were a young adolescent, you were dealing with some anxiety and fears and, and then some real typical adolescent angst, you know, and, and then, you know, we kind of worked through a whole lot of stuff through your, your teenage years. And then I got to, you know, hear from you periodically through college. At that point, you had some suspicion that there were some things that had happened to you in your life that were in your unconscious. And so then in the past few years, you know, that stuff has come to light and we've worked through it. You've worked through it. You've worked so hard. And that's my honor and my privilege to witness that, Mm. you know, to, to be, to be next to you and witness you do that, that hard work and grow from it and learn to be 
a competent, capable, confident adult. It's been my privilege to witness it. You're making me tear up. That's really, really special. I did not expect you to do that. And that's really great. I, um, wow, I'm a little speechless. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, it's interesting because there's, you know, there's parts of my life that I can really remember some parts that I can't. And so, but you know, one constant is going to see you and knowing that again, that we would be working through the day-to-day things. And there were also, I remember times where like, I wouldn't want to tell you something, but I knew that I needed to, because we could process through it and I would feel better about it afterwards. And, you know, you talk about my college years and I know that I didn't tell you everything that was going on. And that's why I only saw you a handful of times during those years because I I was holding some big secrets to myself. And I guess I do want to say to anyone that's listening that's maybe in therapy or wants to start therapy, don't feel pressured to talk about everything. But if you feel like something isn't right, it really is best if you just get it out to your therapist and process through it. And it really is helpful because oftentimes as bad as you think it is, it's not going to be as bad once you tell them. It's just not. You bring a whole different perspective to things and you have such a good way of making me feel a lot better about what I'm going through and that I'm it's normal and that I'm not the first person in the world to have experienced, you know, what I did or when you're an adolescent and you have extreme anxiety and you have OCD and your thoughts are just like all over the place, you feel like you're alone. You're on an island. It's it's just you. No one else has ever gone through this. And being able to vocalize that takes away that power of feeling alone. And then your advice to me and the insights that you gave throughout the 13 years and you still continue to give it just, it puts everything into perspective and takes away that power. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. I think as a therapist, I operate on different levels. So sometimes when you are reluctant to disclose something, it's useful if the therapist can say, okay, let's talk about that resistance and that reluctance. What's that about? Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a, different, a little bit of a different layer. I also remember a time when you were really angry with me. You were. You <laughs> I was going to bring that up, angry. but yeah. Oh, okay. Do you want me to wait? Or no, you- no, go right ahead. That was a great transition. It just, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, you were really angry with me and you were angry because I was really pushing you to not go down the road of mental illness because I never, ever believed you were mentally ill. Did you have stuff that was bothering you? Did you have work to do? Okay, what human being doesn't? You know, I didn't see you as mentally ill and I didn't want you to see yourself as mentally ill because I know that's a really slippery slope for a lot of adolescents. And I thought you were really, you were really vulnerable to that. I think that you felt like I wasn't taking you seriously you know, when in your pain. And I knew I was walking that fine line between validating you, affirming your emotions and your experiences, but also really, really trying to help you to see your own strengths and resiliency. Yeah. Well, and my God, I am so thankful for that. I know I said that to you recently within the past, I want to say a couple months, I, I said to you, thank you so much for not letting me fall into that you know, I am my anxiety. I have mental illness. Like I am so thankful that you were like, no, no, you deal with anxiety. You have it sometimes, but it's not always there. Part of the big issue was I spent time in Four Winds, which is a local, what is even it called? It's, it's a mental health and rehabilitation. It's a psychiatric hospital. Okay. Yeah. Well, when you say it like that, yikes. But, (laughs) but I mean, I needed it. I went there three times. I don't want to bash them at all, but I definitely feel like there were things that could have been done a little differently, um, especially the first two times. But that third time, I really did think back to what you said about you're not mentally ill. Like you have, you have something, you have to work through it. And I journaled, I journaled that entire time. And again, not knocking four wins, but I really credit getting out of there and getting out of that cycle through journaling. Because for that week, I saw the therapist there, I think twice maybe. (laughs) And, you know, this was after a pretty serious incident that led me there. And, uh, 
you know, I was only there for a week, but there was a shift in my psyche after that for the better that I moved forward. But something that they did say, they told me I was bipolar, which you vehemently denied. (laughs) And (laughs) no, (laughs) and I'm thankful for that. I'm really thankful for that because I know, especially during that time, I remember you saying a lot of people are being diagnosed bipolar and I don't think that they should be. And I am really thankful that you stuck to your guns and wouldn't let me fall into that just belief that that's what I had because I don't. That's not me. And I'm thankful that I had you and that you were that advocate for me, even if I got mad at you. (laughs) Right. Well, they only get to see a small slice of your life. They had you for a week, you know, that's what they go on. And you know, and I get it. I get it if they're, you know, they're looking at certain symptoms and that's, it fits best in that diagnosis. But I knew you for a whole lot more than that, a yeah. whole lot longer and, and years, you know, up to that point. And there was no way you were bipolar and there's no way I was letting that, <laughs> that one stick. I God, I'm just, I'm so thankful because that really, again, I'm not knocking them. Like you said, they had me for a week. We also eventually realized what was going on with me, which um, Deborah had hinted at. And I, again, totally open. I was sexually abused as a kid. I repressed the memories for 15 years, uncovered the memories, processed through them with Deborah. So she didn't know that at that time. I didn't know that at that time, but there was obviously something that had happened that wasn't out in the light yet. And how was that for you? I mean, we've talked about how uncovering those memories were for me, but were you surprised by that? I think I was surprised to find out the details of exactly what had happened and how it happened. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't surprised that there was sexual abuse there. Yeah. That did not surprise me. And in fact, there was one time, reading back through your notes, I don't know if you want to include this or not. Go ahead. It's fine. There was one time from your youth that somebody had made you uncomfortable in an extracurricular activity that you were involved in. And you were like, he makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, and that was in the notes and I'm reading it and I thought, isn't that interesting? That was kind of what we were wanting, like, whoa, is there something there? I was always kind of alert to who's been in her life that maybe, you know, has hurt her. Yeah. Thankfully, a young man came forward and called out an old neighbor of mine. And, you know, um, thankfully she is in jail and she hopefully will be there for a couple more years. And, you know, I remember when I found out how long she was going to go away for, I was like, okay, 15 years, that means she'll be in for seven years. And I remember sitting in the parking lot of Forever 21, which is where I was working part-time. I had just left my full-time job that I hated in order to do, to go back to radio. And then I also picked up, you know, a retail job to supplement my income. And I remember sitting in my car talking to my mom and I was like, it's okay. In seven years, I'm going to be 31 years old and I'm going to have a family. I'm going to be happy. I will have done so much work on myself and it's not going to matter that she's out. And, you know, I periodically think back to that. It gives me courage because no one can hurt me. I'm safe. I'm an adult. I have control over my life. And I think that's something that a lot of abuse survivors deal with is that trying to control everything because we didn't have control in as as children. It's like a mantra that I've started to tell myself is I have control. I am in control of my life. I'm good. I'm safe. I'm happy. And it just takes the power away. And I think that even if she gets out earlier than the seven year time frame that I have in my head, I'll be fine because I'm okay. Right. You're okay. You've done you've done your hard work to get to this place. And she can never, ever, ever harm you again, whether she's in jail or she lives someplace else. Yeah. It doesn't matter. She can never harm you again. And you can take care of yourself. Yeah. There's a lot of power in that. And I'm really, I'm really yeah. thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that we did was EMDR, which was really helpful in processing through my trauma. And so if you could talk a little bit about that, because I didn't know about it before I needed it. (laughs) So to maybe people who have experienced trauma and are having trouble working through that, can you explain what EMDR is? Sure. EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. 
And it is a form of therapy that was developed by a woman named Francine Shapiro in the 1980s. And it is a very effective method for helping people to process trauma. The reason that eye movement is part of the title is because when someone goes through a trauma in their life, we know that their prefrontal cortex shuts down during that trauma because the midbrain is where all the parts of you that, that go into survival mode live. And so your midbrain becomes activated during the trauma and you are doing whatever you need to do to survive it, whether that's fight, flight, freeze. So the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that can reason and process through things and understand things and make decisions about things and process time, that just shuts down and goes offline during that trauma. So that prefrontal cortex goes offline during the time someone's experiencing trauma. And that trauma then resides within them for as long as they cannot process it, you know, and that could be years and years for someone. What the therapy does is it goes back to the trauma and it keeps your prefrontal cortex stimulated. That's what the eye movement is about. You're moving your eyes back and forth, or there are alternate ways to do that, like with little vibrating hand sensors or whatever, to keep your prefrontal cortex aware and online while you go back and process out what happened to you and how it made you feel and what beliefs you formed about yourself around it. What is amazing about it is it's incredibly efficient and effective for people. And when I first learned about it years and years ago, I was really skeptical because it really sounded like voodoo, you know, like, what do you mean you get this person to watch a light and then suddenly they, you know, they're healed. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and, but I, you know, I had a colleague here at True North who got trained in it and during a summer and she came back that summer and said, Deborah, you got to do it. It's like life changing as a therapist. It's amazing. So we had a person come in and train a whole bunch of us that fall. And it's been a wonderful, I don't want to say tool because that downplays it, but a, a wonderful skill to have. I don't even remember, Phoebe, how long did we do EMDR? Six months, maybe? I would say that's even a little longer than we did it. I, well, maybe six months. Yeah, it is incredibly powerful, but it's hard work. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard work. I think that one of the myths that people who are critical of EMDR say that it's, you know, you're taking somebody back and re-traumatizing them, but you're not because you're, you continue to move them forward through the trauma. You don't just bring them back into it and leave them there. Yeah. So I think people move, you know, from point A to point B and that's, you know, that's the healing process. So if you did all of that work in four to six months, say, we could be for the next 10 years talking about the trauma and trying to get you to a place where you feel healed. Yeah. And I, I don't know that we'd be able to do it as well. No. And I mean, obviously there's still residual things that I deal with, but that basis, that foundation of having processed through all of that, through EMDR, it cracked me open. I don't really know a better way to put it because, you know, Deborah described the process from a therapist and the science behind it. But when you're the patient sitting there doing the EMDR, you are, you're transported back to the memory that you're processing through. And I know for me, the physiological response. I would leave the sessions drenched in sweat. I oftentimes would be crying. Like my body just purged all of this stuff that I didn't know I was holding on to. And you go through the, the memory and she asks you how disturbing the memory feels to you from a one to 10. And you know, let's say it's a seven. By the end of that EMDR session, that disturbance is going to be at a one or a zero because it just, again, it kind of removes the power. It takes away the shame because it's not, it's not something that you did. It's something that happened to you, but you didn't do it. So that shame needs to be taken away. That's just how like my brain understands it. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I think that it, it takes that emotional intensity out of it. Mm. And you mentioned the somatic experience, you know, feeling it in your body. And that's a huge piece of it because we know that mind body connection is so powerful, yeah. you know, and, and it's based on something called the information processing model. And as you're processing, you know, you're going to have all the, the somatic responses to that. But one of the ways that I conceptualize it is that you have this 
these memories of terrible things that happened to you and that you experienced. And what EMDR does is it helps you to put those memories back here, the back of your brain in the file cabinet. Yeah. Where you don't forget them. They're not, I can't erase them from your memory, but they're back there in the file cabinet for you. If you need them, you can retrieve them. Yeah. And if you don't need them, they're not going to interfere anymore with your, your day-to-day functioning and your future and your relationships. And they talk about EMDR being what they call a three-pronged approach, the past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. You know, that the things that happened in the past can affect you now in the present and even in the future. You know, if you can process them now in the present, you can heal for the future and continue on and proceed in a, in a healthier, more functional, happier way. And I can absolutely attest to the fact that that is the truth. And honestly, doing that work also allowed me to recognize not great things happening in my life at that time and which allowed me to move forward and break away from some pretty not great situations that I was living through. And uh, now here I am. And it's it's really quite something. <laughs> it really is. And, and that's that's just remarkable. And so I hate to say gratifying because it's not about me being gratified, but so gratifying to, to witness in you. Well, thank you. But it, it's gratifying in that that work works. It's yeah. gratifying that the skill that you've learned to impart on other people has worked and it will continue to work. And that's really quite remarkable, especially, you know, we just talked a lot about trauma we're living in a very traumatic time right now. And EMDR might become something that people in a couple of years are going to have to do to process through the trauma of COVID. Because while it's affecting everyone differently, COVID has been a traumatic time. And I really wanted to touch on that with you because throughout Not Fake News, I have a feeling we'll be talking about the coronavirus quite a bit because it is something that you just, you can't get away from. It's truly everywhere. And the biggest piece to me is the lasting traumatic effects that it has the potential to have. So if you could touch a bit about that, that would be really beneficial, I think. Yeah. And that's a great transition, Phoebe, because interestingly enough, one of the leading proponents of EMDR, her name is Dini Laliotis. She practices out of Washington, D.C., She's quite amazing, and I've taken a training with her and have done a couple of online things since, since the pandemic started. She is currently, she's come up with a protocol for dealing with the ongoing stress of COVID and helping people through EMDR to work through that. I haven't been trained in that specifically, but I might get trained, we'll see. Yeah. But you're right, you know, COVID is, it's here. It's a fact of everyday life that none of us can get away from. It's an equalizer. We're all, you know, we're all at risk. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly stressful. People who are not generally anxious have become anxious. I'm in one of those people included. I've, I've never considered myself an anxious person, mostly, but I've become anxious from all of this. You know, I, I, in the beginning, I had a hard time sleeping. I worry about whether or not I'm making the right decisions as far as that fine line between being safe and mental health, mm-hmm. you know, doing the right things. And I agree with you. I think there are going to be long-lasting effects of this this whole thing on all of humanity. I really do. I'm trying to, obviously you can't ignore the trauma of people losing loved ones, of their loved ones being separated from them. I haven't seen my grandmother since February of 2020, which in its December of 2020. And that's really difficult. If I had known that I wouldn't after March 13th, I think it was when nursing homes were shut down, I would have seen her more, you know, leading up to that. But I didn't, I didn't know. And isn't that the essence of life is that you'd never know what's going to happen. And I think that piece really has kind of, it's messed with people because we always know that you never know what's going to happen. But in this situation, people are still here. People are still on this earth together, but we can't be together. And you don't know when you'll be able to really be able to sit in a room and not have to fear COVID. And, you know, as someone who has anxiety and it's been interesting because on one hand, it's like, oh, people are experiencing what I've experienced my whole life with the uncertainty and the anxiety. 
But then there's also, oh, it's like a new (laughs) anxiety. It's a COVID anxiety on top of normal anxiety. And I don't know what to do about it (laughs) because it's that control aspect. You have no control over it and you just have to sit and wait and hope that things will be better. And I do believe that there will be long lasting effects of this and positive effects of people realizing what's important and that time and time together with your friends and family is is gold. It's it's precious. And I I would hope that it would also just make people more compassionate. That's what I'm hoping for in the future, but I don't know what else it has in store. <laughs> yeah. I think that um, it has made us all have to learn to sit with the unknown mm. as much as we don't like that, you know, as much as that's uncomfortable for us. You know, you're right. We don't know. We don't know how bad it's going to get. We know it's going to get worse. We don't know how much worse. We know it's going to get better at some point. We don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know if it's going to affect us personally. We don't know if we're going to get it. We don't know if somebody we love is going to get it. I mean, some of us do know that already, but some of us don't. So we're, we're faced with this huge unknowing and nothing we can do about it. As you said, we're, it, we can't control it. But I think, I think that we have to stay focused on what we can control, you know, in our own little world and also taking good care of ourselves. A lot of emphasis on self-care. Yeah. And making sure we're trying to, to do good habits, you know, to get enough sleep and to eat healthy and to get exercise and to stay connected with people, even if it has to be through Zoom or, you know, or some sort of video connection or phone or even letter writing. God, do you remember what letter writing is? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> daughter, I, you know, I give her lots of credit. She is a wonderful letter writer. She sends notes to my mother every couple of days. Oh. <laughs> it's been very, very good for my mother. Keeping that, those connections going any way we can is, yeah. is vital. Now, and it's interesting, again, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but as much as I miss connection and I miss seeing people, there are times where I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to respond to my friend's texts. I don't want to FaceTime them. I don't want to call them. I just want to be. And I love them. And I know it's that feeling doesn't last forever, but I don't know how to explain it because it's like, I miss social interaction. I miss them. But the, the idea of having a full-on conversation or again, even just like a couple text messages can be exhausting. Mm-hmm. And I don't, it's a weird, it's a parallel thought kind of thing because I miss my friend really badly. No, I don't want to FaceTime right now. <laughs> like, what is that? You know? Yeah. Well, I think that, I think there's a bunch of factors maybe that play into that. There's a lot of social pressure on people to have friends and to stay connected and you have to work to stay connected with somebody. Yeah. It's, it's work that, you know, you have to put into it. And I think because so much of our energy right now is being used up in living with the unknown and in trying to navigate this place we've never been before. And we're tired, you know, <laughs> tired from it. I was so tired the first couple of months when I was doing all my work from home, telehealth from home. Oh my gosh, by the end of the day, I was like wiped out. And all I did was talk on the phone or see people on my computer screen all day. I'm thinking, what am I so tired from? But it was exhausting. Yep. And I think there, there is a part of us in a way that goes, I, I just want to pause. And a lot of people had a pause in the beginning when they couldn't go to work or whatever. And I would hear people say, you know, I cleaned out my closets and I did this and I did that. And I thought, I've never had a pause and nor have you. No, we got nope. no you know, things intensified for you in your job, of what you do, you know, being in, in radio and news and it intensified for me because everybody was, was anxious and upset. So there was no pause. So I do think that you, you know, you want those moments as I do of just wanting to not have to attend to social media or respond to someone's text or return a phone call. I was quarantined in October for two weeks because one of my clients tested positive and they had happened to be in my office the day that they tested positive. So so I was quarantined and, (laughs) and I quarantined from my family as well because I didn't want them to get it. So I was quarantined in my sewing room and it was really not too bad. (laughs) (laughs) I made a couple of quilts (laughs) and 
I had friends who weeks later I was speaking with, I, I have a, a bunch of women friends that I've had for 20 years. And, and I said, you know, that I had been quarantined and they all said, Oh my gosh, why didn't you call? I would have, you know, we would have, and I thought, are you kidding? I worked while I was quarantined. So I was on the phone for 10 hours with clients. I don't want to talk to anybody else <laughs> by the end of the evening, you know, end of the day. It was like, no, I wanted to get off the phone or get off the, the video and, and sit at my sewing machine and, and make a quilt. Yeah. I, I love that you just shared that story because I did want to ask, you know, in general, but especially especially right now, how do you take care of yourself as a therapist when you have to take on so many people's problems? I mean, obviously there's, you're not taking them on, but you're, you're that computer, you're processing through their problems and assisting them through processing through their problems. How, how are you able to do that and then also take care of yourself? That's a question that I've been asked a lot through the years. I think it's about having a boundary that I was able to establish pretty early on in my, in my career, I'm pretty clear for myself of what's mine and what's not. So when someone comes into my office with whatever's going on with them, unless there's been something that that's happened in the interaction between the two of us, which sometimes does happen in therapy, but unless that happens, I'm clear that that's their stuff. You know, somebody once described therapy to me as, as the therapist, builds a bridge from them to the other person. And then that other person can send their stuff over the bridge to the therapist and the therapist can help them carry it. Mm. And, and I like that metaphor a lot, but I also know that I can help carry it, but I also can leave it in my office at the end of the day. You know, I can, I can let that person carry whatever they can carry and whatever they, they might need me to help them with. I can leave there until the next session yeah. or until, next time they contact me and need something. So I don't take it home mostly. doesn't mean I don't think about people at home. I actually have my, my best insights and interventions come to me in the shower. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I don't take the pain home. The Mm -hmm. pain is not mine. And while I feel empathic and I can actually even, you know, cry with a, a client in my office and feel all of that pain, it's not mine. And I know that it's not mine. So, you know, being very clear about that, it's what made me be able to do this job for 30 odd years, you know? That's really, that's really insightful. And I think, I mean, obviously it's a different situation, but what you're describing is honestly something that I think a lot of us can learn from in our own lives to not take on other people's problems and that boundary aspect of of life. I know that I don't have the best boundaries sometimes. And I mean, heck, I'm having doing a podcast where I'm just telling everyone (laughs) what I've been through and, you know, interviewing you, but I'm doing it because I want people to know that they're not alone and that what I've experienced is not unique and that I'm sure there are people that can relate to this. So I guess that is a little different, but I just, boundaries are really important. I know that I try to work on in my journey. Yes. And I think, I think you're right. We all have to examine our boundaries periodically and pay attention to whether or not they're healthy. And to me, a boundary is about saying, okay, what's mine and what's not mine. I'll own what's mine. And it might be 50% of whatever just happened, or it might be 25% or it might be all of it or whatever, but whatever part I'll own, but the rest I'm not, it's not mine. If we can all kind of work on that stuff, we, we don't get ourselves in those really sticky situations of taking on other people's stuff. Yep. That's absolutely. So I think this one has been an awesome conversation and I'm so thankful that you joined me for this conversation today, but I want to leave with one final question. Not fake news is all about vulnerability, all about being real and hearing people's expertise, but also their story and how they got to where they are today. And so I'm, again, so thankful that you shared all of your experiences and what led you to this point in life. But if you could tell someone one piece of advice with all the experience leading up to December 4th, 2020, what would that be? What would you want someone to know? I think the world would be a better place if people could muster the courage to do their work in learning to love themselves, 
and to be more compassionate toward themselves. You know, we're all flawed as human beings and it's hard work being a human and it's hard work looking at our shadow sides, you know, our shadows. And that's one of the things I've been so privileged to be on your journey with you, Phoebe, as you've looked at your shadows, you know, mm. but I think that learning to love ourselves and learning to forgive our flaws is how we get to know ourselves and it's how we become more confident and happy. You know, we all want happiness. Yeah. We all more confidence in the world. We all want to feel a sense of well-being. And, you know, I think it's, it's important to do that work to look inside. And I know it's really, really scary for most people. And it takes a lot of courage, but I think it gets you to a much better place. When one of us does better, we all do better. And the whole world will do better. And we all deserve it because we all deserve happiness, you know? So yeah. I, I guess that would, be, that would be my advice is, you know, do the work. Even if it's hard, do the work because it's going to get you closer to being your, your best self and a happier person, I think. Oh, I love that. And it's so true. It's so true because love, love makes the world go around. And if you don't love yourself, how can you love other people? So right. that's awesome. Exactly. Oh. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. I really, I appreciate you. I shudder to think what my life would be without you. Um, and <laughs> I know that's, you did the work. <laughs> yeah, but you helped. So I really appreciate it. Oh, I don't know if you can hear the dogs in the background, but I guess that's my cue. Um, so, <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. Have a lovely day. You too. As we approach the close of 2020, a year filled with so much change on a global scale, it's easy to focus on the negativity that seemed to wedge itself into the lives of so many of us throughout this time in our history. But what happens when you choose to focus on the positive, to be thankful for the good things that happened over the course of this chaotic calendar year? And if you're sitting there thinking, well, nothing good happened to me this year, I understand. I see you, I hear you, believe me, I get it. But if you close your eyes and look back, specifically searching for goodness, I promise you, you'll find some. In fact, you may be surprised at how much good you actually did experience. So the intention this week is gratitude, choosing to be thankful and joyful as you go through this week. I know Christmas and the holidays look a bit different this year, but choose to find the good in this historic year and remember that there's always a reason for joy, love, and hope. I'm sending you an abundance of love and light. I'm Phoebe Wells, and this is Not Fake News.